0: Bridget, thank you oh, Millon Dwight. Testing. There we go. Yeah. Thanks right. Uh, Bridget, thank you for that offering. and uh, Mellon family, we're going to miss you guys. so we'll, we'll miss you guys. Um, at this point, we can dismiss the children for children's church. So if you're going that way, uh, now is your time. And uh, as they're going, I'm just gonna talk over the commotion. We're beginning a new sermon series today called The Gospel Works. And by works, I mean that it's effective, it does something. So the the gospel actually achieves what it sets out to achieve. It works. And every day, we're going to look at a different area of life that the gospel applies to. So today, we're looking at how does the gospel work on religion? And the next week, we'll look at how does the gospel work on friendship? Because the gospel isn't just Christianity 101. You learn it, and then you move on to the meat and potatoes. Christianity and uh, it's is based on the gospel and we grow in our faith through the gospel. I heard a pastor once say that the gospel is the way in and the way on. So we're going to be reflecting on how does the gospel work on everyday issues in this sermon series. So Diane, would you come forward, please?
1: reading is from Matthew fifteen one through twenty. In your pew Bible, it would be page seven seventy if you have the large print. It's page nine seventy five. And if you would, we have been asked that you keep your Bible open during Ben's sermon. He wants you to keep it available. Matthew fifteen one through twenty. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said. Why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What would you have gained from me? is given from God. You he he not did not honor his father. For so for the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me, teaching me as doctrines the commandments of men. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone.
0: One of the ministries that I appreciate most about this church is the Monday morning breakfast. And for those of you who haven't gotten the chance to go there, we have an awesome team of volunteers from the church who put on a top-notch, diner-style breakfast. And it typically draws in about 100-plus people every week. Now, this awesome team has given me permission to sometimes serve with them on Monday mornings. And they know that my favorite thing to do with them is to go around and talk with the people at the breakfast. And as I uh, interact with people and learn more about them, I typically try and gear the conversation to a set of questions. I typically like to ask them, so what do you believe? And it's interesting the responses that I've gotten. Some people say, well, I attend this church or that church. Some people say, you know, I don't have a religion. I just have a set of beliefs. And then other people say, like, I don't believe in God. So some people are spiritual but not religious. Some people don't believe in God, and some people have other patterns. But by and large, most people say that they are not religious. And I find that claim interesting, that most people think they're not religious. Well, also, over the past two weeks, I've been reading a book called Seculosity. It's by David Zoll. And in the book, Seculosity, David Zoll makes the case that America is becoming more religious, not less religious. Now, he admits that capital R religion, you know, churches and steeples and bells and smells and all that, capital R religion is declining. But he says that small R religion is not. So this is what he writes. It is empirically true the religious impulse is easier to rebrand than to extinguish. This runs counter to popular perception. Bombarded with poor results about declining levels of church attendance and belief in God, we assume that more and more people are abandoning faith and making their own meaning. But what these polls actually tell us is more straightforward. They tell us that confidence in the religious narratives we've inherited has collapsed. What these polls fail to report is that the marketplace for replacement religion is booming. We may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings, not you guys, in greater numbers, but we've never been more pious. Religious observance hasn't faded at pace secular secularization, so much as migrated, and we've got the anxiety to prove it. Most seldom not in church. What David Zal is saying here is that the reason capital R religion, like churches and synagogues and whatnot, is dwindling, is because the stories they tell, the religious narratives, are no longer convincing today. But then he goes on to say. That we still have a religious impulse inside us. That even if we're not finding religion in churches, we're finding religion in other places in our lives. And we see that Jesus, in our passage today, is talking about this religious impulse. And he has a much needed answer for us today. So we're going to see three things today. First, we're going to look at how all of us are religious, second, we're going to look at the heart of religion. And then third, we're going to explore the answer to religion. So first, how are we all religious, us and those outside? Two, what is the heart of religion? What's at the core of it? And third, what is the answer to religion that we need? So first, how are we all religious? In our scripture passage today, and uh, thank you, Diane. If you can keep your Bibles open, we'll be uh, working through uh, the passage today. In our, in our scripture passage today, in verse 1, the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus. And what they say is that Jesus... Uh, Disciples are not keeping the rules of their religion. In this case, it's a hygienic rule. Now, it's a good thing that we're preaching after the kids have left, because I don't want the kids to get the impression that Jesus says you don't have to wash your hands. But you should actually wash your hands, okay, Alexander? All right, good. But what Jesus is talking about is religion. Now, we probably have many different connotations for what religion is. I've said capital R religion and small r religion, but I'm sure we all have brought in today our own connotations of what religion is. I'm sure some of us think that religion is a set of beliefs about who God is and, and who we are. So you think of how some religions teach with one God, some teachers per God. Uh, maybe another connotation you have of religion is that it's a set of practices. So in the Catholic Church, we have rosary beads, or in the Christian Orthodox Church, you have smells and bells. There's different practices that go with it. And these ideas of what religion is, whether it's beliefs or practices are typically associated with big R religion, you know, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. And that's what we typically think of when we think of religion. But I actually want to make a case today that religion is much broader, it's more encompassing, it's actually more foundational to our lives than what we typically associate with capital R religion. Religion is ultimately about what we use to find purpose. Religion is typically what we use to find purpose, what we use to find value, security, hope. David Zoll in his book, Seculosity, says religion is what we use to find enoughness. Am I wealthy enough, influential enough, successful enough, thin enough, good enough? It's all based upon what we each functionally use as a religion in our own lives. It's about enoughness. And that's what small R religion is. It's often hard to see, but small our religion is looking to something for your enoughness. Dave, David goes on to say that however we choose to pursue it, that's our religion. And that's why everyone's religious. You don't have to be in a church to be religious. And you can also be in a church and functionally worshiping something else. And we see an example of this uh, religion in our passage today. In verse 3, if you look at that, Jesus responds... ...to the Pharisees' criticism by asking them a question back. Jesus refers to one of their man-made traditions, and it's a practice called korban, which means a gift, specifically a gift to God. And korban, uh, the tradition in Jesus' day, was originally a very devout idea. Right? It was an idea that you could take some of your money or belongings and you could pledge it to God. Right? So it's like uh, in church, the offering plate is going by... And you can put in uh, a pledge that someday you'll give something to God. In theory, it's meant to show extreme devotion to God. That's what they're talking about today. It's also like a legacy gift where you can put in your will that when you die, a certain amount of your money will go to the church. It's a pledge to the church. Here's a catch, though. Once you pledge the money, you were not allowed to give it to anyone else because you'd promise it to God. So to give it to someone else would be, in their view, unethical but you could still use it to pay your daily bills. You could still use it to go out and spend it on yourself. You see how that could be dangerous? You could pledge it to God, and then it could become an excuse not to be generous to someone else, and yet you could still spend it on yourself. See how that could be a problem? And that's what Jesus is talking about. So look with me at verses 3 to 6. Jesus points out that this tradition was being used to break God's law. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. That word void means you've broken this covenant with God. You've, you've broken the covenant with God's law. So God commanded that children honor their parents, and in this passage we see that part of what it looks like for parents to honor or for children to honor their parents is to take care of them later in life. And yet the Pharisees were using this man made tradition called Corbin uh, to actually not do that. When their tradition clashed with God's law, their tradition won out. Now, what does this teach us about religion? Remember, we've already defined religion as that to which we look for purpose. Value, security, hope, our enoughness. So what do you think the Pharisees are looking to? What are they looking to for their enoughness? In theory, the Pharisees are supposed to be the uh, looking to God for their righteousness. They were the churchgoers in their day. That's in theory what they were supposed to be looking to, but Jesus calls them hypocrites. Well, why? Well, it's because they said that they were looking at God, but they were actually looking at something else for their enoughness. So in verse 8, Jesus quotes it from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. With their lips they profess to worship God, but with their actions they worship their self-made traditions. So what is it that the Pharisees were looking to for their own enoughness? Well, it was their own rules of piety. So whether they were successful enough, righteous enough, good enough, depended on whether they were keeping their own rules of piety. You know, their church tradition, the color of the carpet, the, what they wore to worship, what kind of music they sang, their church tradition became how they gauged their own enoughness. Now you might be thinking, okay, Ben, sure, the Pharisees were religious, some people are religious, but I'm not religious. Maybe this is one of those cases where the guy with a hammer sees everything else as a nail. So Ben, you're religious, So, of course, you think others operate this way. And I would say that would be an interesting response if I was the only one who thought that. There's actually something that social psychologists outside the church notice, too. There's a guy named Jonathan Haidt, who's culturally Jewish, but he's an atheist, and he's a social psychologist. And in his book, The Righteous Mind, he writes this, An obsession with righteousness, think enoughness, is the normal human condition. He goes on to say that we're all concerned about our righteousness, which is like the tertiary word for enoughness, our standing, our worth, our value. And he says, it's in our nature to be religious. There's a God-shaped hole in the heart of each man. What Height has realized is realized that all of us are searching for some form of enoughness, of standing, of merit, of wholeness, of enoughness. And whatever that is, is what we're going to make a religion out of. So I want to address this point specifically to the Christians here this morning and to non-Christians who are, who are here too. First, to the Christians here, it's possible, there's a warning here, it's possible for us to worship God, to say that we're worshiping God, but to functionally worship something else. So I'll give you an example from my life. Before coming up to CSC this summer, my wife, Hope, and I were leading a small group at our church down in the Boston area. And if you would asked us to like put our, on paper what is the purpose for us leading the small group, it would be to serve God. But I began to notice a pattern in myself that when I would go home from leading the small group, the kinds of questions I'd wonder to myself or ask hope were more something like this. How did I do leading discussion? Or uh, did I do a good job? Or did I explain the Bible text well? Those are the questions I was asking myself. Notice that I wasn't asking myself, was God honored? Or was he pleased? Who I was serving in those Bible studies was really measured by whose image I was concerned over. God or mine? So I was slipping into what we could call a religion of my own image. That what determined my enoughness was whether or not my image was up to snuff. So friends, we can claim to worship God and yet in that same act functionally worship something else. Okay, so now to the non-Christians here. I'm glad you're here, and I want to make sure you know that I'm going to address you too. So, fair game. Uh, you you can claim to not worship anything, but I'd wager that you have a religion too. Now, how can we tell? How can we tell we've made something into religion? Well, I've included some diagnostic questions in our bulletin. In the back, there are some discussion questions that are great for after the sermon, and I've included about halfway down some diagnostic questions from Tim Keller. And the first, he's a pastor in uh, Manhattan. And it can help you feel what your religion is. And the first question you'll see is, what do I worry about most? If you are worrying often or excessively about something, whatever that is, that can often be your functional religion. So are you concerned with what others think of you? Are you overly concerned with the opinion that others would have? Do you need to maintain a certain reputation in your group, in your family, with your friends? Or perhaps what you're most worried about could be politics. Are you overly concerned about if your political party will get into office in the next election? So these diagnostic questions are helpful ways to see what are we looking to in our lives that can function as religion, what we're looking to for our enoughness. Maybe something that's already popped into your head. So first, we've seen that we're all religious. We all have a capital R or a small R religion that we adhere to To make sure that we're successful enough, moral enough, or good enough. We're all religious. So second, let's look at the hearts of religion. In verse 10, after critiquing the Pharisees, Jesus turns to the crowd. He calls the people to him and he said, hear and understand. Now this Jewish crowd had also adopted the Pharisees' religion of tradition. So their idea was that their moral enoughness depended upon their physical cleanliness. Now, think of what eating would have looked like in their day. This is before silverware. This is before stainless steel. How they ate food was they'd take a piece of bread in their hands and they'd dip into their food and they'd eat it. So, you know, your hands are pretty important. I, I wouldn't even like to eat like this today. But they thought that their moral enoughness depended upon their own hygiene. That's the crowd. So what Jesus is saying, that you don't actually have to wash your hands, there's not this correlation between that and your own enoughness before God, would have been shocking. That's who he's talking to. But we read in verse 10 that he calls the people to him, and he says, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Okay, well, what comes out of a mouth? Well, look down at verse 18. He says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Jesus says the problem is not what we put into our bodies, whether there's germs. I wouldn't recommend not washing your hands. But he says that's not the problem. That's not the true problem. The actual problem is what comes out of us, what proceeds from the heart. So Jesus, in this passage, in this conversation with the crowd, is looking at what is the root of all religion? What is at the core? What do all religions have in common? And he says there's two things. The first thing is that all religions make something into a god. All religions make something into a God. We've already talked about how in every religion we look to something for our enoughness. What Jesus says is that that thing, whatever it is that we're looking to, is in our heart. So let's break that down. We each develop our own religion when we make something ultimate in our life. And it becomes ultimate when what it demands for us to do takes precedence over other good things in our life. So we let this small God this fake small God, take precedence because we give it our heart. So I've read a book this summer called Counterfeit Gods. I'd highly recommend it. It's Counterfeit Gods. And the author identifies that we give, God, we give these fake gods, these small R gods, our heart by doing three things. Loving, trusting, and obeying them. We make something an ultimate in our life and that's what we direct our love to, that's what we direct our obedience to, and that's what we direct our trust to. That's what we do with these fake gods. The Pharisees, the tradition can be different for us. So let's say that someone's job, someone's god is her job. If someone's god is her job, she might end up loving her job over other good things. and She might end up checking her email because she can't bear to be apart from it rather than spending time with family. That might be an indication that a job is becoming a god. Or second, we might trust her job for her security, rather than looking to the real God for when life becomes turbulent. Or she might obey the demands that her job places on her, rather than obeying the demands that God places on her. So we often love, trust, and obey the the gods of our hearts. So every religion has a God. The second thing that all religions have in common is that they're based on what we do. Every religion, whether capital R religion, like Buddhism or Islam, or small R religions of our own making, or work-based, or work, or work based. the God of that religion. For the Pharisees, it was a tradition. For us, it could be work. It could be our image. It could even be our family. But whatever that God is of our religion, it ends up setting uh, a standard for us to meet. And if we, leave, if we live up to that standard, then we will be enough. But there's always a standard, and it's based on what we do to get to that standard set by the God of our religion. So we need that promotion. We need that perfect Instagram account. We need the perfect kids And then we'll be enough. Every work-based religion is a catch-22 for our enoughness. Because if you think you've lived up to it, then you're going to be prideful. You're going to look down on others. That's when conservatives feel like they're holier than thou. Or when the liberal feels like, I can't tolerate you because you're not as tolerant as me. When we've met our standard, we become prideful over others. Or you don't live up to your standard. And if you don't live up to your standard, then you become full of guilt. Because you can't measure up. And that guilt becomes a cycle that keeps you from ever reaching your standards. There's a catch 22. And in order to maintain our sense of pride or overcome our sense of guilt, we end up bending the truth to achieve our ends. We take shortcuts, we tell lies. I think of Lance Armstrong, who was stripped of all of his Tour de France victories when it came out that he was doping. And I wonder if Lance Armstrong had functionally began to adhere to a religion of winning, of success, that he was willing to cut corners to make it to. Because he couldn't reach that standard. And I think we did the same thing. And that's why in verses 18 to 20, Jesus makes a long list of all the evil things that flow from this kind of heart. You can just read a long list. They actually follow the Ten Commandments. So every religion has a God that we love, trust, and obey. And we try and earn our enoughness, our standing, our value, our worth who we are, our identity, by meeting the standards of that God. So we try to maintain our pride or overcome our guilt by cutting corners, and that leads to all these bad things that we do. Now, let's think of an example. What would it look like to have uh, a religion of success? Who knows what yesterday was? This is New England, right? Tom Brady's birthday? Okay. He just turned 42, so the goat is 42. And I think of a 60-minute inter- interview with Tom Brady after he won his third Super Bowl. Now, at that time, he was the epitome of success, right? He was, he was victorious. He was uh, successful on the field. He was desirous by the women of the nation. He was the epitome of enoughness, according to most people. But I found what he said in the interview pretty inter- interesting. Even the host saw that Brady had finally gotten everything he'd ever, he'd ever wanted, And yet, Brady said something shocking. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I think there's got to be more than this. I wish I knew. I don't know how Brady feels today with twice as many Super Bowl wins. But if I had a guess, I'd say that deep down he feels the same way. Because if we set our God, if we make a God out of anything other than the true God, we're always going to fall short. And we see that even the most successful people. So, friends, on a day-to-day basis, what are you looking to for, your, for love? Uh, what, what are you trusting? What are you obeying? Do you see that you're actually in bondage to that thing? Do you see how this is kind of a form of slavery? How when we set up a fake religion and we prop some finite thing up to become an ultimate thing in our life, and that becomes the arbiter of our value and worth, how that becomes a form of slavery? Because it sets up expectations that we have to live up to. That we can never meet. And if we do, if we think we do, we become prideful. And if we don't, we become guilty. And we cut corners and we do really bad things to to often get there. This is a form of bondage. So who or what can we look to to deliver us from this trap of religion? And that brings us to our third point, which is the answer to religion. This passage teaches that we need a heart transplant. As long as our hearts are loving, trusting, and obeying the gods of our own making, we will continue to be prideful or guilty and never satisfied. What we need is a God who says not, do this, do this, and then I will accept you. We need a God who says, I accept you, now do this in response. We need a God who accomplishes for us what we could never do for ourselves. And friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel flips religion. The gospel is that God didn't wait for us to do uh, what we could never do, to be good enough for him. We could never be good enough for a perfectly holy, perfectly just God. Who among us is perfectly just in all of their life, and all their actions? None of us. None of us live up. So God became a human being, Jesus Christ, so that he could live the perfect life. And then Jesus swapped his record of perfection For our record of failure, Jesus died on the cross to bear the consequences of our religion. And then he rose from the dead so that we could live forever in him. I love how one pastor put this. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself or something else for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where only man deserves to be. And that's on the cross. Do you see how the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a religion? The gospel flips religion. Religion, whether it's big R or small R, is all about what I have to do to get to God. The gospel is about what God has done to get to us. It's the opposite. So for those who accept this gospel, our enoughness is not based on anything we do, but wholly on Christ. It's not what we do, it's what Christ has already done. Did you catch that? It's not what we do, it's what Christ has already done, It's over, it's accomplished. Our enoughness is complete for those who look to Christ. Because he is our enoughness. That's the gospel. So when I am striving after standards, it's never going to be over. And we can we can end up trying to love those things, whether it's work or family, but they'll never satisfy us. And a, a, another pastor I know has this great line, and he says, and Bridget should know this, the only thing we need to be a disciple of Jesus is need. The only thing we need to be a disciple of Jesus is need. And that's why we sing, just as I am. Because we come broken to be mended. We come wounded to be healed. We come desperate to be rescued. We come empty to be filled. We come guilty to be pardoned. We come with our need. There's no other way to come to Jesus. If you come thinking that you have some modicum of enoughness in you for which you can stand before God, then you won't be able to stand before him because we never live up. The only way to come to Jesus is to say, I have nothing. I have no enoughness in me. It is all on you that I'm looking to. That's the only way we can come, is with our need. And then how does Jesus receive us? How do we come before God's throne? Well, as we sang, because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, that's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table today. That Christ has done everything that we need. All that we need to do is receive it. So put your purpose, your value, your security, your hope, your identity in Jesus for your enoughness. Let me end with two applications. Repent and rejoice. The first application is repent. Repent over whatever it is that you're making into a works-based religion. Try to identify what that is in your life and offer to God. Apologize that you're looking at something else for your enoughness that will never satisfy Offered a prayer asking God to help you to look to him for enoughness instead. And then rejoice in the gospel. It's not what we have to do, but what Christ has done. We're freed from this bondage to a religion for another God. We're free to have Christ's enoughness. And what that does, if we actually rejoice in the gospel, is that it allows us to love other things like we should. Like if you're looking to your family, your kids for your enoughness, if they live up and get that job, they live up and uh, marry the right person and that determines your worth, then you're going to be micromanaging their lives. But if you look to Christ for your enoughness and then you you look to your kids as your people that you're stewarding on his behalf, then you can love them appropriately. So we love the things that we make into God the way that we should when we look to the true God, Christ, for our enoughness So rejoice in the gospel. So friends, as the uh, elders uh, come forward for communion, reflect on how this table, this table, is for you who are trying to look to Christ for your enoughness. Christ welcomes all of us to set down our heavy burdens of trying to be enough and instead to receive his gift of enoughness. Friends, as we prepare to gather at this table, remember the words that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In this supper, we remember that the Lord gave himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for us, so that we could eschew the gods of our own making, that we could look to Jesus for our own enoughness. That's what this table represents. And he's opening up a new relationship for all of us to have with Christ. Now, this meal is also for Christians. Christians who are living by faith, looking to Christ for their enoughness. So if you're not following Jesus or not uh, looking to him for your enoughness, then I just ask you to not take the bread and wine. You don't have to be embarrassed. You can just pass it to the next person. But th- that's who this is for. And the, as the elements are passed to the rows, uh, remember that Christ has not only died, he has not only been raised, but he will one day return. So we're also looking forward to that future promise that will be reunited with our lost ones, that will be reunited with all the saints throughout all time when Christ returns. That's why this meal is for those following Jesus Christ. So if you're visiting with us and curious about what this is that we're doing, we'd love for you to uh, understand what it is, what it means to us who are Christians. So please ask me or a friend who brought you, and I'd love to tell you more.